Hello and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data and journalism. I'm your guest host, Craig Silverman, the editor of the Verification Handbook for Disinformation and Media Manipulation, which was recently published by the European Journalism Center and is available to read for free at the Data Journalism website. Today, I'm gonna be talking with Sam Gregory. He's the program director of Witness, a human rights organization that helps people use video and technology to document human rights abuses around the world. He's an award-winning technologist and advocate and an expert on new forms of artificial intelligence-driven myths and disinformation. He wrote a chapter about exactly that topic in the Verification Handbook, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's have a listen to our conversation with Sam. Hi, Sam. Hi, Craig. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to be with you. Great. Well, look, you did a a wonderful chapter for the Verification Handbook, uh, really focused on deep fakes, on synthetic media, and how journalists can think about verifying and, and dealing with this stuff. And I want to dive into that, but I think it'd be great to kind of get a sense of why you and also why Witness as an organization is has been so engaged on these particular topics? So, um, yeah, we ended up working on this because of um, the, the main focus of Witness's work, which is we work globally with um, human rights activists, uh, ordinary people trying to document human rights abuses um, and share uh, truthful and verifiable information and accounts. Um, and we've spent the last 30 years doing that um, globally, including in the US and in North America. Um, And one of the things that you have to do if you're going to help people document truth is also work out how to combat uh, falsehood. Um, Because, you know, the same individuals who face um, the, uh, who have the opportunity to document um, human rights violations are also uh, facing threats from misinformation and from gender-based violence and from uh, faked images. Uh, and they're also often called upon to to challenge them. So um, the way we ended up working on deepfakes was we have a strand of work within Witness uh, that really looks at what we describe as emerging threats and opportunities. And uh, about two and a half years ago, we started hearing about uh, new ways in which people could manipulate um, audio and video. What, what you find when you're a human rights activist or, or a journalist is usually the problems are already scaled um, and um, impacting you know the people you work with, um, and so we wanted to um, try and engage early with deepfakes, so to see if we could prepare better for them. So, in terms of of deepfakes and I guess a broader category of synthetic media, can you could you give a kind of basic description of what it is we're talking about here, and and why all of a sudden people may have have heard about these being talked so much about in the last couple of years like what has changed that's caused these to become seemingly such a big concern yeah deep fakes are are basically new forms of audio visual manipulation that allow someone to make realistic simulations of someone's face voice or actions the reason they've got more prominence is that they build on um, advances in artificial intelligence that have made it easier though not easy um, to make these um, and, 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 you know, there's obviously been a lot of hype around deep fakes, right? I think um, many people have seen, you know, the headlines around them that, that you know, focus on them as the root of, um, of all evil. And a lot of that hype um, has been misplaced in terms of where deep fakes have got to. Um, you know, 
over the past couple of years, they've still required you know pretty significant computational power to do, say, a face swap deepfake and some understanding of how to, to tune and uh, often to do some post-production to make them good. You know, other aspects of synthetic media, this broader category, are tools that allow you to sort of add and remove an object within a video, um, alter the background conditions in a video, for example, to confuse an OSINT investigation, um, and do things like match people's lips to an audio track. They're also uh, advancing faster, um, and they relate more closely to many of the threats that activists and journalists are already seeing. And then technically, things are getting easier. Um, deepfakes are getting easier to make. Um, they require fewer source images um, that are fed into the algorithm that makes them. And they're also getting more commercialized um, by um, both somewhat by big companies, but also by uh, open source developers and others. I mean, what is, would you say, is the threat level uh, for a journalist right now thinking about this stuff? I mean, are they likely to encounter... Um, synthetic media is something that's been very manipulated, or is there a sort of lower grade of manipulation that's much more prevalent right now? Uh, journalists are, are most likely to encounter, obviously at the moment, shallow fakes, so just miscontextualized, lightly edited videos. Where, you know, we're obviously encountering those all the time in, in the work that you do and that I do. Um, I think the place, unfortunately, that a journalist is most likely to encounter um, a deepfake, i.e., uh, uh, you know, a manipulation made with artificial intelligence is likely to be um, in the form of gender-based violence directed towards them. That's, you know, the biggest category of deepfakes right now are um, deepfakes that are made to attack um, primarily women, both ordinary people, journalists, and celebrities. Um, so I think that's that's what journalists are most likely to encounter, unfortunately. Um, it's, a, it's a funny thing. I think some some of the press around deepfakes kind of sort of wants them to happen to us. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, the long as the, as long as possible as we can avoid deepfakes being widespread, the better. Um, so I'm actually relatively skeptical whether we're going to see a lot of deepfakes this year. Um, it feels like existing tactics work quite well. The technology gap is is still narrowing to make them accessible. Um, so I, I don't think journalists should be particularly worried about meeting them on a day-to-day -day basis. I think what they need to worry about is about making sure that all the investment and the measures that are being built to prepare for deepfakes because the technological march towards them is moving fast are actually built with the journalists in mind. So actually I think it's more about how journalists think about making sure that the tools that are being built, the focus of the attention of the big platforms and the researchers, that those are on target than necessarily thinking that they're going to have a deepfake in their inbox every day. Right. And in terms of their, I, I guess there's one level where just being aware that this stuff exists is probably a good thing, but I suppose there's also, uh, if you were to put a lot of resources into thinking about and trying to counter deepfakes in your newsroom, that may not be the best use of time and resources. I think there are good investments that journalists can make now. So we, we ran a, 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 run a series of meetings, uh, both in the US and Europe, as well as in uh, the global south, so Brazil, South Africa, and Southeast Asia. You know, talking to journalists, um, talking to fact checkers, also talking to people who experience misinformation. Um, and generally there is, yes, right now, um, obviously with constrained resources, you know, training everyone in your newsroom to, to think about how to spot deep fakes doesn't seem like a great use. Um, thinking about ways to have access to shared detection tools or shared expertise does. Um, and building a greater understanding of media forensics generally 
uh, feels like a good investment. I think if you think of deepfakes as um, one of a set of ways in which people are trying to manipulate media and where media forensics is increasingly necessary, then I think that's a good journalistic investment. Uh, building um, you know, capacity in every newsroom to spot face swaps, probably not at this point. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, you get into this a bit in the chapter that you did in the handbook in the sense that, you know, you talk about uh, these technologies and you talk about sort of how they're generated and these kinds of things. But when it gets actually to the, okay, so, so what do you do about it and how do you think about it? You know, there's a little bit around the forensics of looking for, you know, potentially manipulated things, but there's a lot of thinking about the context of that footage or that image, stuff that is not necessarily technical, that is in some ways kind of old school digital verification. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, obviously it, it really makes sense to not exoticize deepfakes as well, right? You know, they're shared by uh, people with malicious or non-malicious purposes. They're in context of other events. Um, and so absolutely in the chapter, really, uh, I try and discourage people actually from trying to sort of think they can spot deepfakes. I think that's a dangerous tendency, which is just like, you know, I'm going to be able to spot them because, you know, they don't blink or, um, you know, there's distortion on on the forehead. Uh, already the research suggests that we're not great at spotting deepfakes with the human eye. Um, and that's going to get harder and harder over time. Um, so, so as a first step, I think it's really important people reground this in, you know, in, in a, you know, in visual verification, um, you know, who shot this, where was it from? Uh, can I prove it was from the location it claims to be as their corroborating information? Um, I think that the trick with deepfakes, and this is where we, we haven't got to yet. And it's, um, and I highlighted in the chapter is we are going to need tools. that are going to help that, um, as deepfakes get better at, um, creating invisible to the eye manipulation or invisible to the ear. Um, it, it's going to be helpful to have media forensics tools that give a signal of that, uh, to a journalist or a human rights investigator, um, to help them on their way. So I think that's, that's an important next step is, is understanding how those signals get generated, um, that help inform it. The other problem, and we've heard this in, you know, when we did these threat workshops, particularly in the global South was, you know, the worries that already this is used to challenge any piece of citizen media or any um, piece of compromising footage. And, and it's a lot harder to authenticate true in some sense than to prove false. Um, and so I think that bigger challenge is the one that, you know, we're already seeing the kind of it's a deep fake challenge, uh, the ability to have plausible deniability on, on real footage or real compromising footage. Yeah, that, that's the sort of strange twist in this is that you may not, you don't have widespread deep fakes, you don't have it being deployed in tons of examples of, or many examples at all of it, uh, you know, changing elections or influencing people's votes or big things like that. But what you do have is, is the sort of discussion and hype around deep fakes creating an opportunity for people to just dismiss something as a deep fake or to, as you say, question its authenticity. It's, it's kind of a strange scenario where the technology is not fully there yet, where it's widely deployed, but just the existence of the technology is actually kind of what the threat is right now. Yeah. And, you know, and it's been, you know, one of, you know, we've been working in this area for about two and a half years now. And, um, and one of the, the first things we've recommended is we have to deescalate the rhetoric around this because the rhetoric, the way we talk about deep fakes provides the weaponization, um, you know, and so really, you know, I think that's still true. We need to keep telling people deep fakes are not widespread. They're not around you. And we need to think about who we need to prepare now to deal with this threat. Uh, because as you say, it's like the it's a deep fake is, is already there. 
Um, I think it's also, you know, a lot of a lot of my work is about sort of decentering the big politics dimension of mis and disinformation. So, you know, when we did these meetings in in Brazil and in Sub-Saharan Africa and in Southeast Asia, you know, we brought people to the table who are in civic movements or deal with these kind of digital wildfire of rumors that incite violence. You know, and they already see circumstances where people claim that, you know, a video that shows, um, you know, police repression was faked. They already see scenarios where people attack community leaders with, with, these, with these faked videos that, uh, you know, imply that they're you know, linked to drug lords in Brazil or, um, you know, or, uh, you know, have sexual misconduct of some form or another. And, and I think, you know, that there's quite a short leap from where we are to deepfakes playing a role in that. So at the same time as I want to de-escalate the rhetoric and recognize, um, you know, that that rhetoric is harmful, I think being aware that the, 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 the scope is close, particularly if we de-emphasize, you know, that this is, you know, the Russians doing big disinfo and instead look at spaces where the fakes don't need to be perfect, um, where they can... Um, where they can be deployed in, I guess, in more small-scale, localized ways. Um, and that's what we've heard a lot. Uh, in terms of the, the threats and the risks that people in the Global South that you're talking about, where you've done those meetings, compare that with sort of people in you know, countries like in North America and Western Europe. What are the big differences that you're seeing in terms of that media environment and where manipulated media is, is impacting the daily work of journalists? So I think one one dimension is kind of the context. So um, in the South Africa meeting, it was very clear that um, many of the participants perceived that the government might well be the source of the mis and disinformation. So um, targeting activists. Now, uh, that may be true in North America, um, probably less so in Europe. So it's sort of a real perception of where the threat is coming from. Uh, other dimensions that I think differ is, you know, if, if, if large news organizations in the global north think they're under-resourced, obviously... Uh, you know, a community media organization that's documenting is the only real source of information in a favela in Rio or Sao Paulo does not have the resources to, to you know, to get OSINT training or to get media forensic skills. So a real perception of a, of a resource gap. Um, and then the other thing is that, that, you know, mainstream media may not be perceived as a credible source. If you're in Myanmar, you know, the new light of Myanmar or a government newspaper has never been a credible source. So, you know, if you're trying to share news of what's going on in, you know, northern Rakhine State, you know, where we've had these war crimes, you're incredibly reliant on, um, you know, this this citizen footage, this user-generated footage that's coming out there. So the perception of sort of a threat to that um, ability to show what's happening, um, you know, very critical. And then the other thing, and I think this comes up when a witness, when we think about mis and disinformation, is often people are really close to the harm that comes from you know, a rumor that spreads on WhatsApp, you know, you can, your community may face direct violence because of a rumor. Um, and so your sort of proximity to the harm that comes out of fakery is, is greater than, say, if you're a journalist in, in many contexts in, in the US, the Canada or Europe. Right. I, you, one of the things that, that you and Witness are doing a lot of work on is what you call uh, authenticity infrastructure. And could you, could you give a kind of basic description of, of what that refers to? Yeah, so it's, you know, um, one of the ways that people talk about countering both the broader phenomenon of mis and disinformation and, and to some extent deepfakes to say, well, what if instead of trying to detect you know, fakery after the fact, we could trace what is real and how things are manipulated over time. Um, 
And it's quite a compelling idea, and it's an area where Witness has worked on for, for almost a decade. We've built tools um, with a group called The Guardian Project, like Proof Mode, that enable people to add rich metadata to sign videos they shoot on a mobile phone so that they can be trusted more and tested to see if they've been manipulated. And it's been kind of a niche area for six or seven years in the commercial and, and nonprofit space. But what we're seeing now is a greater move by, by bigger actors to say, how do we track uh, what's not necessarily what's true, but how things have been manipulated and where they originated. Um, so you might think of examples like the New York Times Provenance Project or the Content Authenticity Initiative from Adobe, Twitter, and the New York Times. Um, and, and I think there's, there's real potential in these, right? I think you know, knowing where something came from, how it has been manipulated, can be a tremendously powerful tool for, for countering you know, the shallow fakes, the sort of recontextualized videos, and it could be a way of countering deep fakes. Um, what we've been trying to emphasize is what are the, the trade-offs we've got to manage as, as these types of things go from being niche, you know, something you can choose to put on your mobile device because you're gathering evidence or citizen journalism, to infrastructure when they're part of the platforms or they're part of the way you interact with a commercial tool. And so sort of some of the questions we've been raising, we've been uh, in the middle of the conversations as part of a working group at the Content Authenticity Initiative and talking with platforms is questions like, you know, who might get excluded if you build this infrastructure? You know, if you took some of the people we work with who document uh, police violence um, in volatile situations, they can't have their real identity linked to every piece of media. Uh, they can't share very close location information on every video they shoot in order to have it proved. They might want to do that on a single video or a photo, but they can't do it consistently. And if you look at people in somewhere like Myanmar, um, for many years, people used jailbroken phones because that was the only way to get access to apps. And many of these tools won't work if you have a jailbroken phone. Um, so we're sort of concerned about those kind of technical and privacy issues. And we're also concerned about where this starts to push um, you know, the necessity of proof uh, towards, you know, legal processes, journalists, uh, the media industry, you know, how does this create what's called a ratchet effect, which is you start to have an expectation you're going to see this type of authenticity signal. And if it's absent, you think it's less trustworthy. And, you know, in psychology, people talk about the spillover effect. So when you have something that claims to be true, then people perceive the other content around it as less truthful. Um, and we can't have that happen with something that might have exclusions that are entirely rational for people to say, I don't want to add this data to a video or a photo. And then the other layer, which we've been concerned about is, you know, if you look around the world, you've got fake news laws being proliferated, uh, particularly right. in COVID. And many of them are about who's a journalist, uh, what is true and false. And when you build infrastructure, um, you should expect all types of actors, including good and bad actors, to try and use it and abuse it. Um, and I think one thing as we build these types of authenticity infrastructures to make sure that they don't end up being a tool for governments to say, we need to be able to prove who created this and where, you can imagine that the disaster that would be for anyone who's a dissident, a citizen journalist, uh, a community media maker who's not you know, authorized by the government, or even a mainstream media outlet that's uh, publishing stuff that is contrary to, um, to, to the government's wishes. Right. I mean, there's an interesting kind of tension here where as the ability to manipulate media becomes easier and easier and perhaps in some ways more convincing or just good enough, there's, there's a, a desire to sort of use similar technology to say, all right, well, let's, let's put more provenance in here. Let's, mm -hmm. let's, you know, let's embed in the metadata of a photo or of a video who created it, where they were when it was created, so that we know where it actually came from. And, and you mentioned that uh, a project from the New York Times where it's trying to 
Uh, and correct me if, if I'm not describing this uh, correctly, but I think there's an effort within professional media to sort of be able to assign owner and clear data around information being produced by, you know, real media outlets. Uh, and at the same time, there are people like Adobe who build a lot of the tools being used. who are also saying, well, we can build in some features for authenticity, but you guys are sort of saying, well, that, you know, this is, this is potentially all really great, except when you are putting your life at risk to get a video out of a war zone and showing the exact location may certainly help with verification, but it's going to potentially put that person's life at risk. And so we've got to figure out this balance of, you know, protecting against manipulation, but also not exposing people who are doing this kind of work, as you say, at Witness have been doing it for decades of trying to expose this stuff. Yeah, it's, it's exactly those tensions. It's how do, we, how do we manage those while recognizing that, you know, if you're in a war zone or you're documenting police violence or you're a community media maker, you often want to have those signals. You just want to have the choice. So we're arguing, you know, when you build these systems, you have to make sure that uh, they're opt-in, not obligatory, um, that they provide signals that help people trust a piece of media but don't confirm trust, um, and that they don't end up excluding people who aren't, you know, confirmed as being, you know, major media. Um, you know, for, for, for good or for ill, uh, and I would argue largely for good, we've seen more people able to communicate, particularly in communities and places that haven't had access to the ability to talk and have their own news making done over the past decade. And we need to avoid, you know, our solution actually um, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, mm. We end up re-entrenching trust in a few large media outlets, uh, but we end up compromising trust in the diversity of um, smaller media outlets, citizen journalists who are actually sharing good and re relevant information about where they live and operate. Right. And, and a sort of one small example of, of, a, of an authenticity piece that, you know, has, has worked in some ways, but also caused a lot of problems in others is sort of the ver account verification route mm -hmm. that a lot of the social media platforms have, have gone. Uh, you've produced some work around this. You've got a, a quote from uh, something you recently produced. So what if the ticks don't work or they work too well at the consumption end and ticks referring to the verification check mark that you can get on Facebook, you can get on uh, Instagram, you can get on Twitter. What are some of the, the challenges that you see around these verification programs and some of the perhaps unintended consequences that we're getting from that type of authenticity infrastructure? Yeah, so, so we did this report um, last year called Ticks or It Didn't Happen that looks at 14 of these dilemmas. Um, and it, it comes from the British word tick for a check mark, not, not the, the blood-sucking insect that is encountered in North America. <laughs> it's confusing if you're not English, we discovered when we released it. Um, <laughs> and, and one of the chapters was about this problem of the verified check mark, because we have this history of seeing how uh, people misunderstand verified check marks. They assume that they are a uh, signifier of the truth of the content, not the identity of the maker and their popularity. They, um, they play into what we might think of as systems one thinking or system one thinking, which is easy heuristics. Um, and they have this spillover effect, the way they make people think that other content can't be trusted. And, and what it, we've learned as we've been involved in working in this space and, and now part of these initiatives is there's not a single yes, no, right? Um, you you need to be able to understand and interrogate pieces of media to understand, you know, is that is a manipulation malicious, right? So both a synthetic manipulation and a standard edit isn't necessarily malicious, right? You know, I create video all the time and I edit. That's just a normal part of editing. 
and, and of, of media making. And when I take photos, I, I tweak the, you know, the sunset or I use a bokeh effect or something like that. Um, so we have to be really careful about how we, we do this as a yes, no. Um, and we also have to be really careful about context. So one of the problems with uh, sort of yes, no authenticity marks about the integrity of media is, of course, most visual misinformation is recycled, miscontextualized content. So it's about the summary or the way someone frames a piece of media, not necessarily the underlying video or photo. So you might get a tick mark on the underlying photo saying it hasn't been manipulated. But if someone puts a line on it that says, you know, this is a, you know, this shows, you know, an ice raid taking place, you know, yesterday in your community and it's in fact from two years before you can incite real real danger and real violence and real confusion um and there would still be an authenticity mark on the video that uh, that is shared in social one one of the weird things that we're seeing particularly right now around the coronavirus uh on twitter is you have people who've gotten the blue check mark for something you know work that they have done that is completely unrelated to medicine completely unrelated to virology all of these sort of relevant uh expertise and disciplines of what we're dealing with and then because you know they have the blue check mark and maybe they've got a decent number of followers anything that they put out takes a takes on a certain level of importance it might show up higher in twitter search results because they're a verified account and other things like that and and there's a way of kind of laundering that credential to to create content and spread information about an area that you actually have no expertise in, but you've got the check mark, so you've got a kind of built-in advantage. Yeah, no, I think that 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 they're fundamentally flawed, sort of single yes no of either credibility of the source or or authenticity of um, of the content uh, or reliability of the content, with with the exception of, and I think this is why it's 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 tempting, and I understand why major news outlets are trying to do this. That for for a, for a major news outlet, uh, confirming source is valuable. It's just once that spreads beyond that, setting the boundaries of what that means over time is incredibly hard. Now let's let's talk a little bit about a little bit more about the coronavirus and, and what you've been seeing. So in the in the areas in the fields that you're paying attention to, uh, obviously we know there's been a huge amount of mis and disinformation around the coronavirus. What are some of the things with your focus around uh, manipulated media, synthetic media that you've taken note of um, that you know are worrying or perhaps encouraging? Yeah, so we've been we've been watching it from from I guess three perspectives. Um, you know, and this sort of reflects how witness works. Um, one perspective has been seeing people uh, trying to document rights abuses during the coronavirus. This isn't misinformation. This is people um, trying to show, you know, police violence, you know, exercising their right to record in Argentina when people violently repress people who come out during a lockdown um, or in Kenya or Nigeria or South Africa. And I think that's, that's a really important dimension. We've seen new people joining that information sort of sharing. So health workers, um, I would not have thought of them as a primary kind of information source in my world. But now, of course, they are often those frontline witnesses. So that's been one thing we've been seeing. And, um, and many of the communities we work with are, you know, doing both kind of this sort of healthcare work, but also um, challenging rumors and documenting violence. So think of, I was watching a live stream of someone we work with in Brazil who was delivering aid at the same time as um, the Rio police uh, did a raid into the favela where he works and shot. Uh, an innocent person. So all of these things collide in these um, video documentation and live streams. Um, then we've been seeing misinformation. And I think it's, um, you know, we're, we're seeing um, misinformation on similar topics, right? Um, and it's not, it's, it's not deep fakes. It's, it's these shallow fakes, these miscontextualized videos. So 
uh, examples of videos that claim to show police violence, but are in fact from a different scenario. So in, in Southern Africa, you've seen those in India, particularly um, uh, where, where groups were allied with have been documenting anti-Muslim um, uh, sentiment. Uh, for example, the hashtag Corona Jihad that was um, being tracked by a group called Equality Labs that showed how miscontextualized videos were inciting this direct violence against um, Muslim communities in India. Uh, and then the other side of our work is uh, we work um, a lot trying to communicate what happens at a grassroots level into uh, pushing and advocating to platforms. And, you know, we have this sort of accelerant effect on, on, on a lot of trends at the platform level. So, you know, when Facebook and YouTube, um, you know, sent their moderators home, uh, they started doing much more algorithmic moderation at the same time as they ramped up all these anti-misinformation um, efforts around COVID-19. Um, mm. So we've been pushing for, you know, data preservation, uh, real fine-grained information on what the takedowns are and how that plays out, because it's pretty critical at the end of this that we assess what worked and what didn't about the platform efforts, um, because otherwise there's going to be maybe a default tendency to say, let's just carry over some of the things platforms have done on COVID to other areas. And some of them might be good areas to carry over, and some of them might be really terrible ideas uh, to carry over into other forms of political or human rights information. What kind of traction are you getting with the platforms about, I mean, they typically don't release much in the way of information around takedowns. They tend to release big, impressive numbers that they think, you know, conveys that they've removed a lot of bad stuff. Are you, do you think, are you hopeful that they might release more granular information about what's been taken down around the coronavirus? I hope they will. I think it would be the right step to take. And we joined 75 other groups um, pushing them. And that's an ongoing process. I think, um, I think there's a real opportunity that they should see as well to take, you know, I, it's, it's not an experiment, but it is a hopefully contained period in which you see the impact of many different measures. Now, separating out what works and what doesn't, um, separating out, um, you know, uh, how, how takedowns happened and, and which were accidental ones because the AI didn't work, which were uh, justified is, is going to be a real, real challenge. But um, I hope they'll recognize that releasing the data uh, in a more granular way, in a way that actually informs people's ability to understand the problem is the right thing to do. Yeah. So let's, let's conclude with a bit of a lightning round here. So for journalists who are maybe not super familiar with image verification, video verification, in terms of some of the, the tools and approaches that you would say are worth them looking more into, what are some of the things that you would highlight? You know, the first is just to learn how to do basic video verification. So, um, you know, the process of, are you looking at the original, who captured that original, when was it captured, what was the location, um, and why someone captured it. So, you know, using tools like uh, reverse image search. I, I think that's the starting point because it's applicable across shallow fakes and deep fakes. Yeah. And, and in terms of synthetic media, if, if someone is suspecting that, that something, you know, is inauthentic, it might actually have some kind of, you know, artificial intelligence or other type of synthetic generation to it. What are some of the things that they should think about in their approach? So it's tough because there aren't good tools as yet to do this detection. And many of the tools that are being built by platforms, they are concerned about making available more broadly. And I think that's going to be a problem is who gets access to the tools. Um, as it stands, I think, you know, uh, there's a three-step process that is worth someone trying. First is, you know, take a look and see if there are obvious um, 
signs that something has been manipulated as synthetic media. You know, if you look frame by frame um, to look and see if there are distortions, look at the, the details, uh, you may see things that, um, that indicate it is. Um, I wouldn't rely on that in the long run, but it's a good start. Um, then do a visual, visual verification process. And then the third step is probably is going to reach out to someone who has expertise in deepfakes uh, to review it. Um, and this is a critical need. We've got to work out how to get greater expertise available to journalists so they know who to reach out to, they know who is the person who has media forensics who's available to check something. Right. And if you were to think about the timeline where, um, you know, a true deepfake, a true synthetic media video has a, you know, a real world, uh, you know, large scale effect. Do you do you see that happening in, in a certain time frame or do you think that the the work on the detection and prevention is is coming enough in tandem that we may not have that happen? No, I, I think we'll have a problem, and, and I hope it's as far away from now as possible. And I'm not wishing it on us to have this problem, but all the technical trends in terms of less data needed, less processing power, uh, the combination of video and audio are pointing towards this becoming accessible. And we're also starting to see it become available in apps and as just as a sort of as a service you can pay for. All of these will make it easier for this to happen. So it will happen. It's a question of when at large scale, because it's already happening at small scale in gender-based violence. I think the time frame of deepfakes is, gonna, uh, is, is hard to predict. What is predictable is that the progress of making them is getting easier and easier and more accessible to more people. Um, and, and that's why it's important to invest in making sure that the detection, the authenticity infrastructure, the accessibility and the availability of skills and tools to journalists gets started to be put in place now. Um, and I think, you know, the reason we focus on this sort of preparedness approach is we've done so badly, and I mean that across the platforms and across journalism and human rights in, in preparing really well for the previous waves of misinformation globally, that if we can do better on this one, it's worth doing. Great. Look, thank you so much for joining us, Sam, and good luck with your work. Thank you, Craig. Pleasure to join. That's it for our podcast this time. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed it, you can subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. You can also read the new verification handbook for free at datajournalism.com. I've been your guest host, Craig Silverman. That's all for now. We'll see you next time.